And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 241, aka season 3, episode 61, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with MC and Ken Schoolin. Woo! Welcome back, Ken. Always glad to have you. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, you took like one week off and you said, you know, like, I'm not a regular host anymore. I'm dropping it again. You're going to be a regular host. Any, anytime <laughs> you're not here, it's going to be like a special thing. And then you're just a regular guy now. Uh, <laughs> and we can still take phone calls if you want to talk to Ken. Uh, 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. That's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. Uh, so what is going on with you guys this week? Well, we're always talking about stuff, and one of the heated topics is climate and climate change. Oh, Jesus. Um, so we know some people personally that uh, that are climate crisis believers, and uh, I'm not. I'm not one of those. So, Do you want to put um, them on blast and drop some names? Call neg- them out. Negative. Um, so I, I would like to say where I think some of it comes from. And uh, so one one thing that is known in, in the political world is that negative information is 20 times more powerful than, than positive information. And so I think it's the same effect that, that people have. And, and another idea I had. All right, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you real quick. Just a procedural note. Someone's moving their microphone way too much over there. That would be Ken. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really drowning out what I'm hearing from from MC saying. Yeah. Please so, continue. Stop moving over there. Um, <laughs> yes, please, please. So basically, you got multiple effects combining on on top of each other. So the negative information being twenty times as powerful as positive is one of them. Uh, the other one is, I think, because uh, I'm not one hundred percent sure on this, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think worldwide things are actually better than they've ever been. Um, poverty is down. Um, deaths from uh, from uh, natural disasters are way down. Uh, you know, schooling for for both sexes are up. Um, so, in, in many regards, things things are better than they've ever been. Uh, actually, yeah, deaths deaths from from government are down too. Uh, I would say generally that's the case overall, but I'm sure we could pit, pick it apart and find specific examples where things are getting worse. Sure. Well, in certain areas, I'm sure they are. Right. Um, but generally everything is getting better. Uh, most of it I think has to do with the temperature of the planet and the fact that we have, uh, natural resources that we can use to create more food and, 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 you know, uh, better lives for ourselves. So, um, if, if things are really good, then I think what people tend to do is find something to be worried about. And so the, I think the climate crisis is, why it's it's really popular in in, uh, in in wealthy countries because there's nothing else to be worried about and so okay it's it's they, they have to pick something and and it's so funny because if you were to go to a poor country do, do you really think they're they're worried about what the temperature of the planet is no they're no. worried about the temperature of their house <laughs> exactly or their hut exactly they're either too hot or too cold and how are we going to pay for it um I want, to, I want to call you out real quick because you said you think things are getting better because of the temperature of the planet. Sure. Uh, is, did, you, did you mean that how I heard it? Like the, the, we're at a perfect temperature right now and things are improving? Well, or- it has it, things on the planet have been improving as the planet has gotten warmer. And when I say warmer, I mean slightly warmer. 
for the last you know eight eight thousand years uh it's it's been warm compared to previously uh so coming out of an ice age is a really good thing for humans um and and the very slight amount of temperature variation that we have right now in the upwards direction uh ever since you know in, including the the increase in temperature has been overwhelmingly good for humans uh, so one of the reasons why it could be is maybe because, uh, well, higher temperatures means uh, more uh, water evaporation in the air, uh, maybe creating more uh, clouds and more rain. And more rain and, and more CO2 uh, equals more crops. And we can see that when we look at the, at the images from, you know, from NASA over the whole planet, uh, there's more vegetation growing. And that's, uh, that trend has been occurring that's that's a, probably the most important trend to humans is is the amount of of food that we have uh, for the world uh, you know for all, all the people so okay um it's easier to grow with more co2 and uh it's easier to grow with more uh cloud cover and, and more uh water evaporation and so another another point I'd like to to make that you know i just found out today is that um in in Australia, supposedly there's there's more of a, a drought condition, and if you look at the the heat map of of the world, uh, it looks like Australia is being covered by well colder water temperatures around uh, Australia. So that that would mean less evaporation of water uh, for Australia. Okay. So so cooling uh, is bad for Australia, uh, at least uh, cool ocean water around Australia. So. Um, I think warming uh, is not going to be a bad thing for Australia. It's not going to create drought. It's the exact opposite of what they say. And I, so, so yeah, I would say warming is good for the planet. CO2 is good for the planet. And the trend of increased vegetation around the world is a good thing. Can I provide a counterexample that you may not be aware of and sure. I may not be completely accurate with it? Um, so apparently in, in certain African nations... Uh, in the northern African nations, there was like an initiative cross borders to plant a forest mm -hmm. uh, along the border of the Sahara Desert mm -hmm. because as the planet warms, the Sahara Desert was expanding, right. reducing the amount of vegetation in those countries. And this was a proactive human initiative to stop that trend um, because warming in that particular area wasn't good. It was actually creating more desert right. land. As opposed so, to vegetation. I, first thing I would ask is how effective are, are they with planting the trees? And the second thing I would point out is that the Sahara Desert has been growing for a very long time. So it's, it's been getting bigger from before humans could have impacted that at all. Uh, so that that is uh, a trend that... Uh, you know, it's part of nature, I believe. Okay. And but does it trend line with your, maybe it's trending with your increase in global temperatures, right? You said that that's global temperature increase over 8,000 years is good for humans, but maybe not in this particular region. Yeah. Is what I'm maybe not in, maybe not in every area. And that's, okay. and that's the thing. Like all, all, that's a pretty big area. Is, all climate is local. So, um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, I don't think, that, uh, I don't well, think the suggestion. Yeah. I don't think the suggestion is that it's expanding because of man-made climate change. It's just that as the temperature increases, the desert has been growing, and now there's like a man-made effort 
to stop that trend, regardless of how it started. May I suggest there's something entirely different than climate or temperatures that are very big factors in the growing desertification of the Sahara, and that is uh, overgrazing. Uh, the fact that it's a common resource property, it suffers the tragedy of the commons, that property that isn't owned is overly exhausted by uh, herders and migrant uh, um, uh, herds that, that, that divorced uh, lands and, and increased the desertification of it. I once um, knew of a research team that had studied uh, and found that there were parts of the uh, Sahara that were very lush and green and they were fenced and uh, ranched and they were by their controlled grazing they were as prosperous as and, and as fertile as as one would have expected a long long time ago in in um, uh, in the Sahara region that what had happened was not climate change but uh, just extensive overuse by um, you know, common, as a common resource property. Yeah, and that and that happened in the U.S. too, I believe, with the poor farming practices and, and okay. created the conditions for the Dust Bowl. I think doesn't that necess necessitate uh, some intervention to stop those uh, migrant communities? I guess, for lack of a better term, from overgrazing the common land. Well, like, don't, don't they the establishment of property rights is is uh, a market phenomenon. It's not the the intervention of the actually the, the the traditional government policy was that to to prevent the establishment of property rights and it's usually been taken away from indigenous populations uh, when Mar Ma mc was talking about this uh, situation in the american west you know it, uh, the indigenous populations were removed from the lands and it was given to you know uh, mostly white settlers uh, taking over the lands and so on and um uh, so I would say that government's inter intervention wasn't on behalf of property rights. It was often to remove indigenous populations from something that was more familiar to them. Okay. A, a common retort to that, if we're going to if we're going to move the discussion back to the Americas, is that the the natives, uh, the Native Americans, didn't have a proper system uh, of of property rights, and so if if the land belonged to everybody. Uh, what was to stop the the European invasion um, from establishing those property rights that, as you said, Ken, uh, seemed to benefit uh, individuals and the land as a whole? Well, I think they did have a concept of what was their territory. Uh, there were dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of, of tribes all across the country that they knew very well where their, what their territory was and and would vis-a-vis uh, -vis others. Uh, but for the most part, uh, white settlers, the early American uh, government, didn't even acknowledge them as human beings. They had no rights in the courts. They had no rights to property. They couldn't uh, uh, defend themselves uh, against a legal system that where the military just came and removed them. That's uh, the legacy of Andrew Jackson and and uh, most all of the presidents in fighting Indian wars over the years was just to remove them and uh, kill them uh, or put them onto reservations where they were wards of the state so uh to say they didn't have property rights is maybe to say they didn't have them in the same way that was recognized in a um in a title court in the united states uh 
Sure. But they weren't allowed the same rights as any other person. They Actually, a lot of the early Crow and Seminole uh, Indians, Creole and, and Seminole Indians in um, uh, Florida and so on, were well adapting to the whole legal uh, procedural system uh, until Andrew Jackson removed them. You know, they were they were some of the most sophisticated and and advanced uh, farmers and ranchers in the region until they were removed be just because they were Indians. So I'm I'm uh, trying to send you a picture of this map, Ken, that was pulled up on uh, Columbus Day. Uh, let me know if you get it. So this is, if, if you can see it, and sorry, I'll, I might post this in the show prep uh, area for those who can't see the map. This is an overlay of the tribal maps. And if, if you can see the map or pull up the article, uh, Matt and, and, and Ken, um, you'll see that the, it's not as uh, cut and paste, I guess, as current modern day maps, right? There's there's a lot of overlaps and common use areas. Um, so maybe maybe the idea that they, they knew their territory, but it wasn't exclusive use over a territory, um, at least this map would suggest on on first glance well obviously it's not because the tribes used to fight each other too so right uh, <laughs> uh i you know what what system is better a system where uh you, you you think you have a property but every once in a while you have to fight somebody or uh you know a more well-established uh system so i don't know. i would lean to the more well-established system but that would that would play into the white European settlers coming in and establishing that you know that more cut and dry. Here's our line. Here's your line. Type as long of thing. as as long as Indians were recognized as having equal rights with other human beings, then okay, then their rights would have been respected. So and, there's and, more and, to it than just the land. Then it's it's well, the rights of the individuals as well. But there's a problem though because the Indians didn't respect each other's rights to the land, and it's obvious from this map. It over. <laughs> overlaid right and they that's kind of what i'm saying <laughs> so yeah and so you know from from the western or the, from from the you know the white settlers opinion oh they were savages well they kind of were in in that regard but uh does that mean uh they should have treated them the way they did um obviously there was there was a lot of uh unfortunate uh murdering of you know of of the the natives and sure. uh, that probably shouldn't have happened but um yeah i don't i mean it's 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 really weird talking about it now because it's kind of over with and, but i don't i don't see i don't see a good solution for for that problem right <laughs> well, well and when you mentioned the word savage okay i you'd have to say that the <laughs> at the time the behavior of europeans coming to um the Western Hemisphere, by today's standard, was uh, would absolutely be described as savage. Sure, what they sure. did to the native population was savage. What they did to the importation of slaves was savage. What they did to other uh, Europeans, uh, remember the, the French and American, uh, French and Indian Wars, where the British and the French um, hired the Indian tribes to help them kill each other and just just to take territory. Yeah. But it, Spanish, it wasn't. But it wasn't. Spanish, it wasn't all like that though. There was there was probably some people that came over trying to escape the king, and 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 his rule, and and they wanted they maybe wanted to integrate with the Indians and and you know just live a, a peaceful life, right? So sure. Uh, if you look at it as individuals, like yes, there was probably some people who accomplished that, um, but 
there, you still have to look at it from the from the point of view of you have one group of people who would like to have a uh, more defined property lines and right. another group who is uh, more uh, what what do you call it when they move around roam around a lot um, uh, migrate or uh, trans transit no like the yeah. like the Mongolians. Um, What's I'm, the word I'm for them? Nomad, nomads? Yeah, there nomads. Yeah, nomads. They're no, they're more nomadic. Um, not completely. I mean, you can you can see on the map, you know, where they would typically go, but they they weren't tied down to uh, one area, and they and they, you know, it's it's completely different. And I don't know if they're I don't know okay. if they're compatible. Maybe they are, but well, I, I'm just trying to I'm trying to reconcile the idea the idea of of property rights in order to stem the tide of overgrazing, over-migration, and, you know, nomadic tribes using up communal lands versus, uh, you know, what, what Ken brought up when he compared it to the, you know, the, the takeover of the Native American lands, right? They, they didn't have established property rights, and then you're saying Westerners came in, established property rights, but then overgrazed anyway. So I'm, I'm trying to... Well, I mean, uh, the notion of property rights is, is a territorial notion. I'd say the Westerners were much more sophisticated in delineating and defining those and then uh, being able to settle disputes about those things in courts. Uh, but that isn't to say that they didn't, that the tribes didn't have a notion of their rights to the territory that they were, were their hunting grounds or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I, it's not a a perfect system, but then they, it was an it was a very early and and um, unsophisticated system, you might say. But it's still the notion of property um, still existed. Maybe not to the individual property, but to the tribe at least. Right. So, okay. what, what is it fair to say the the more sophisticated uh, the the delineation of a property, the the less violence that that we could have. And unfortunately, uh, someone had to lose property, and it was the Indians. Okay, fair. Yeah, uh, by by force of uh, you know just the technology that helped one uh, group have uh, have their way more, because m mostly these decisions were made by force. You know, through most of history, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I would I would still point out that the the Indians when they didn't agree they they resorted to force too so i, sure. I don't I, i'm not oh, saying yeah. force is always wrong i think it was done in a horrible way to the indians for the most part um i think uh it could have been handled much much better uh make you know with with more understanding and and uh well less murder but when when you regard somebody as as uh, you know, not even human, then I think that's the problem. Okay, I'll reiterate a claim that I've made in the past, uh, just for, for the for the sake of throwing it in here. Violence is always the answer. Uh, <laughs> it, it's 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 the last answer if you're lucky, but it's always the answer. It's always the solution. the The goal of civilized society is to settle disputes before you resort to violence. Otherwise, disputes that aren't settled prior to violence will always end in violence at, in some form or fashion down the line. Like, I, I see that personally as a universal truth. Um, and the, another, like, you know, little quip that I'm fond of saying is, uh, might does not make right, but it does make it so. 
right? And it, it, the, the quicker we come to that realization, uh, the better off we are at trying to find solutions to disputes uh, before they become, uh, you know, violent altercations. Because that's, that's usually not good for anybody, um, but less so for the guy who wins, right? Like the, 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 winning, the winning guy gets what he wants, may take some casualties, may take a little bit of injury, but if eventually, like, you know, gets what he wants. Um, and, and so is the case throughout human history, and I don't see that as a trend that's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, but I'm also going to try to cycle this back uh, to climate change because the that question, the question of the Indians and the, the you know, Sahara Desert and whatnot, came up as the best way to privately stop um, the climate from impacting uh, fertile grounds. Right? You brought up we brought up the Dust Bowl, brought up Sah- Saharan Af- Africa, uh, you brought up Australia as as places where outcomes are different uh, based on you know what the climate is in that area currently. Yeah, and, there, and there's other things going on with the, the climate at that time also. Um, there was a massive heat waves that the cur- current climatologists are, or climate scientists are trying to erase. So they're, uh, currently they're, they're trying to erase the past, uh, but really in, in the, I think it was the 30s and 40s, there was a, a huge heat wave in the U.S. Um, and during that time, it was also very dry, uh, and so the conditions lined up uh, to where there, you know, there was starvation and, and the government's solution to that was uh, destroying crops <laughs> you know, uh, because the economy was bad and they wanted to help farmers uh, keep prices high. So um, the, the thing I fear most, and that, that was my, my ultimate point, was uh, the, the thing I fear most more than climate change is government change. Um, so... They could, for example, have a, a carbon tax, which causes uh, farming practices to increase in cost. And and if, if the price of food goes up, then it makes it harder for people to feed their families and, and drags the whole economy down. Um, well, there, and- there are also some on the left, you know, the, the ANCOMs, the socialists, that look at the capitalist system of, of wasteful food as uh, part and parcel with the government destroying crops. Right, they go, how can restaurants throw out food when there's homeless people on the street starving? Right? How yeah. can grocery stores throw out all that, you know, all that expired food or, or let it rot on the shelves while there's people out there in need? Uh, so same thing, different because it's private property. Well that's same a, issues we're, we're facing. Yeah, that's a totally different issue. Um, you know, after it gets to the store and what, what they do with it. Um, but what the government is, is doing is paying farmers not to farm. Um, and paying them to destroy their crops. Uh, that was most, uh, it started mostly during the Great Depression when, you know, a, a quarter of the population was unemployed, people were out of work, people uh, were standing in line for soup kitchens, and the government at the same time was paying farmers to destroy 6 million pigs, 2 million ca- head of cattle, plow under millions of acres of growing cotton, and they paid the farmers, I mean, because it was embarrassing to be destroying all this food, so they just paid the farmers not to grow it in the first place, okay. which was essentially creating these massive shortages in the, in the Great Depression. And that didn't go away at the end of the Great Depression. It's, it's grown by leaps and bounds in the United States, Europe, and Japan ever since then. Today, the, uh, uh, the government is spending about a trillion dollars over the next 10 years uh, in this kind of program to uh, 
to essentially keep food expensive, which is a very, very costly thing for the lowest income people, for very powerful, very rich farmers. So, so what are people afraid of? And what I would say is that uh, what we're told is that they're, they're afraid of the climate changing and creating mass migration, mass starvation, <laughs> um, and you know, something else. I can't remember exactly what it is. But I would say if you look at it currently, you know, the world's better than it's ever been. But if you want to look at the reasons why there is mass migration right now and starvation is because of sanctions, because of government uh, in, involvement in, in their own countries and in other countries. So really it's government right now is the, is the only thing that is causing people to uh, mass migrate or to have uh, you know problems getting food at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> it re it <laughs> reminds me of L. Neil Smith's uh, comment, the government is like a disease masquerading as its own cure. Mm -hmm. In other yeah. words, they create these problems, and then, of course, they are the ones that have to solve them. Uh, government solutions never involve a reduction of government. They always involve greater government, even though the problem may have been generated, was uh, often generated by their own behavior. And so what well, I think is is they're going to try to do is try to limit CO2. That's going to cause problems around the world, and they're going to blame the, the problems around the world on, on the climate when it's really the government preventing people from you know, you know, producing for themselves. Well, well, an example of that is the uh, massive uh, federal flood insurance, which encourages building in flood-prone and hur hurricane zones uh, all, all along the coastlines and and uh, leading to massive increases in the damage when there is a storm. But it's been motivated and propelled by government policy, uh, removing all the risk for people to, move, to build at the, at the coastline. One farmer, or one, one householder, built a house in Jasper, Texas, I think it was, um, and uh, it was rebuilt by the government 18 times at a cost much, much greater than the than the total cost of his house. I think uh, the house was about thirty or $40,000 originally, and they spent $900,000 over the years uh, replacing it for him, despite all the disasters. Jesus. Sorry, Rich, we kept cutting you off. Oh, no, that's okay. Because <laughs> um, I, I can't see you. I get no, I get no visual cues, uh, which not a problem. Um, what, I what I was going to ask was... Uh, when it comes to the 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 CO two issue, is that is that a first world problem that's uh, where the 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 cost and the burden is now being placed on third world slash developing countries because we've all like you know the the, the Americas, uh, Australia, you know, China I guess to to an extent have all gone through that or Europe has all gone through that industrial phase where we pumped out massive amounts of CO2 to get modernized. Um, and now we're telling, you know, the, the now developing nations that, oh, we're destroying the planet with all this CO2. You guys can't develop anymore because it's bad for our planet. Um, meanwhile, we've already got, you know, we're already in the first world. So, you know, which it's passing the burden on to them because they're not allowed to develop because of our concerns over CO2. Well put. Do you want me to speculate on what they're trying to do? Sure. You said it's a fear-based well, thing. Well, they're trying to punish uh, rich countries. And so they, they, they want to make it more expensive for people in rich countries. And 
they're they're bribing the leaders of the poor countries, and and the proof of that is that well the IPCC. So what the IPCC does is is say give me all the evidence of how how much it would cost if the planet was you know 1.5 degrees C higher temperature, and so uh, they're trying to uh, say that it will hurt poor countries more, uh, and so the rich countries are going to have to pay the poor countries for you know whatever damage is inflicted and really what it is it's it's trying to set up a, a one world government where uh you know super powerful people get to decide who the winners and losers are rather than uh you know the climate or that's a the, real the deep conspiracy as opposed to we don't want india and pakistan to you know keep developing <laughs> you know this whole thing is such a sham of the of the presumed care uh, for the for, for poor countries if the rich countries really cared for the poor countries they could simply allow them to sell their products in the rich countries but they don't they have massive trade barriers against their yeah. their m most produced products agricultural goods that aren't allowed to be brought into the united states europe and japan in other words they could triple their um income uh, from these uh uh, from these sources by just simply opening up trade, getting rid of the quotas and uh, allowing them to sell the things they can. It would it would do so much to enrich those countries. It would reduce the uh, the desperate need for migration. It would reduce the power of tyrants and dictators and military operations all around the world by just simply allowing people to become sellers to the first world market. Yeah. And they, they, they don't. The first world farmers and, and uh, protectionists are so powerful and so disinterested in the poor in those countries that they keep these trade barriers in place. Well, that that's my suggestion, right? They're, they're not letting them develop, and the excuse for not letting them develop is, you know, carbon, CO2, climate change, uh, global heating, whatever, all, you know, all the, all the excuses that they're coming out with. But it's really just what you said, Ken, was, is a protectionist mechanism to hold them back from developing and catching up. Uh, to first world farmers and and producers up here, right? If they're if they're allowed to industrialize and produce, it's going to be a lot cheaper to get those industrial goods as they're coming up, right? As they're you know gaining their foothold in the in the global marketplace, than it than it is you know than it will be if you had to buy everything from you know developed industrialized nations. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think one thing is clear: they the powers that be do not want things to be cheaper. Oh yeah, never. <laughs> it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing when it comes to tariffs, right? And uh, we talked about this before. Um, you know, the seen and the unseen, uh, the the concept from Frederick Bastiat, and that is when when you introduce a tariff, someone wins, right? There is there is some uh, company, uh, industry, uh, individual who's like coming out ahead. Because other consumers are forced to buy their products at a higher rate, you know, and and so they get they get more sales at a higher price than they would with with competition from other companies or other nations, and to them they go, "Yep, put a tariff on them," because I'm going to get paid more, my profits are going to go up, I'm going to be able to take better care of my family, um, and who cares about you know the 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 imports coming in, right? And, but people look at that and that's all they see. They go, oh yeah, it's good for American steel or it's good for American farmers. Um, 
and it, it is right for those very narrow specific industries it absolutely is yeah, but well, at sometimes. the expense <laughs> well I, I mean if if you're putting a tariff on on foreign you know corn right and people are, people are forced to buy american corn at a higher price right how is that not good for corn farmers yeah without seeing the cost to the producers like on the steel uh yes there's been a temporary benefit to the uh to the steel industries but at the expense of automobile industries that have to buy steel so that that's what i'm saying many, that's the unseen part yeah that's right yeah well it but it also becomes seen because eventually cars will just be produced elsewhere and so the steel industry has uh you know an upper limit to how much it could be helped um and it's the same same in in hawaii for example like the jones act helps the shipping industry but there's a limit to how much it can help it it's the shipping industry in hawaii is not growing anymore simply because of the jones act if the jones act were to disappear the shipping industry would grow tremendously and they'd probably be making more and even if even with added competition they they'd probably be making more uh, just because there'd be so much more uh, benefit to doing business in Hawaii. I, I've got a show prep article uh, assessing the Jones Act national security rationale. Do you want to transition into that? Or sure. Ken? But you might start off um, explaining it to maybe maybe your audience uh, won't know what is meant by the Jones Act. In fact, most people in Hawaii don't know. When you say the Jones Act, they don't know what it means. So go ahead and, and elaborate on the meaning of that. Oh my goodness! Hold on, then, because <laughs> I don't. I don't have a. Well, it just it means that any ship that goes from one American port to another American port has, has to, to stay be, out. It has to be on an American-made vessel, made in America, uh, crewed by an American crew, seventy-five percent owned by an American uh, owners, um, citizens, and fly the American flag, which means uh, governed by all the regulations of uh, of American maritime shipping. Well, those are extremely costly. The, the cost of, a, of an American-made ship from one of the three shipyards remaining in the United States is, only, is maybe anywhere from five to eight times more costly than the uh, hundreds of ships that are made uh, in our allies from South Korea or Japan or even in China. And, uh, and we're, Americans aren't allowed to buy those ships. And... Uh, Therefore, everything that goes from Hawaii to Los Angeles and back has to be um, on a much, much more costly vessel. And because they make so few of them, um, the American fleet is much older. I think the average age of an ocean-going vessel is around 40 years of age as opposed to 10 years of age. So it's much less efficient, much more polluting, and much more dangerous for uh, for the crew, for such as the El Faro, a Jones Act ship that that sank off the coast of Florida, uh, was way out of date in its uh, in its uh, you know maintenance and and security preparation. All right, here's a quick summary, Ken, that kind of reiterates what you just said. Since 1920, the Jones Act has mandated that the sea transport of cargo between U.S. ports must be performed by vessels that are U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. flagged, and U.S. crewed. Uh, justified on national security grounds, the law was meant to ensure a strong maritime sector to bolster U.S. capabilities in times of war or national emergencies. These envisioned benefits, however, have proved illusory. While the Jones Act has imposed a very real and ongoing economic burden, 
Despite this, the law survives thanks to well-connected supporters and ignorance of the Jones Act and its costs by the general public. Is that yeah, a good summary? So, yeah. yeah, right. So states like Hawaii and Alaska, um, it's estimated that they may be paying as much as $3,000 more for uh, per household for their goods each year um, because of the Jones Act. They have to get these things from... Uh, from the mainland on very expensive ships and other countries such as the philippines can sell things to and send things to california at a much lower cost which which is i think one of the main reasons that the sugar industry in hawaii was driven out of business despite all the protections that were put in place it was driven out of business there's no sugar industry left in hawaii and that's because any country around the pacific could sell sugar to the united states um transporting it much more cheaply than uh, than the Hawaii sugar planters. Um, there's a lot of uh, because of these high costs that means that Hawaii and Alaska with about 2% of the nation's population bear the brunt of the national security expense. I mean if they really really were are secure interested in national security they'd have the whole country pay for it. In other words uh, okay the country could be uh, taxed to build uh, American ships and so on like that but they don't want to do that. They just want to raise the price to the consumer. Doesn't that uh, incentivize that you that... people in Hawaii to buy local? Isn't that a thing? <laughs> buy local, stay local. Yeah. Then you don't have to worry about this because it's not going port to port. It's just grown right there on the Hawaiian lands. Yeah, sure. So then, uh, uh, yeah, of course, that would be very expensive. Um, but that means that uh, we can't buy anything from abroad and they can't buy anything from Hawaii. In other words, there is, there is even a... Uh, an example of where a cattle uh, rancher, or I think I, I think Maui or the Big Island, had to send their cattle to the U.S. mainland in a 747 airplane because it was cheaper than sending on a ship. Jesus. Um, cruise liners have to go up to Canada or Mexico to make a stop in a foreign port before they can go uh, on to Los Angeles because it's uh, you know a, a Jones Act requirement that they would have to be on an American-made vessel. And these, even these, there are three shipping shipyards that make these, um, that make these ocean-going vessels. Two of them are owned by foreign companies. One's owned by a Norwegian company and the other one's owned by a Singaporean company. But because the shipyard is located in the United States with local labor, they say, oh, well, then that justifies everything. Even at the great expense of labor across the country that's hurt by these high costs and restrictions all, all up right. and down the the mississippi river too you know they have to be on jones act vessels they can't be a vessel that was made abroad imagine if we said well it would be a national security risk if americans were allowed to buy foreign cars or foreign trucks only allowed to buy ford and gm you can't buy a toyota or a bmw or a nissan or something like that well, on a small scale, they do. There's certain there's certain models of vehicles that aren't allowed to be sold in the United States, and the rationale is usually safety. I see. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, so they use some techniques for getting. Sure, every every country has those sorts of protectionist measures. It's it's usually lower model cars at you know more affordable prices that don't meet the U.S. automobiles you know the stringent safety features. But, you know, it's a decent enough car. Would have passed inspection back in the 70s before all the, the rules and regulations got bumped up to, you know, exorbitant levels. Um, 
so people in like you know like i said you know, india pakistan you know uh, china are able to get these you know sub five thousand dollar vehicles back and you know they can drive them around right but well, you won't and, get anything brand new here for that price and by making shipping ocean shipping so expensive they've diverted a, a tremendous amount of cargo traffic to trucking um which is much more costly uh you know it's a uh, certainly costly in terms of fuel and accidents and uh diversity i think when uh, europe ended some of their cabotage laws and rest- ended some of the restrictions on the use of shipping um their um they tremendously increased their ocean shipping for for traffic all around europe and it reduced the the demand for roads i mean there's a lot of wear and tear on highways uh when you've got uh, excessive use by trucks absolutely all right so let's see what cato has to say about the jones act's national security rationale and then uh, feel free to comment further or stop me anywhere in between uh, the jones act has been a blight upon the united states for nearly 100 years that law survives despite its well-documented well-documented costs in large part be, be by excuse me that law survives despite its well-documented costs can in large part be ascribed to frequently made claims it is vital to u.s national security such claims should be greeted with a skeptical eye uh, as the author explains decades of evidence suggest any contributions made by the law to national security are vastly overstated in fact, there is considerable reason to think that the Jones Act is a net national security liability. The facts are these. Under the Jones Act's watch, the U.S. maritime sector has suffered grievous setbacks. Numerous shipyards have closed, the domestic fleet's numbers have dwindled, and the pool of mariners that the military draws upon to crew its sealift fleet has become perilously shallow. Rather than ensuring, as the law states in its purpose, a merchant marine of the best equipped and most suitable types of vessels, capable of serving as a naval or military auxiliary in time of war or national emergency, the Jones Act has produced a depleted, decrepit fleet of limited capabilities. The Jones Act is complicit in this decline. The law, after all, is rooted in an absurd logic that to promote both a strong U.S. shipbuilding sector and domestic fleet, the latter must be compelled to purchase from the former. The result is the achievement of neither, which is the predictable result of linking two protected, uncompetitive sectors together. U.S. commercial shipyards oriented towards the captive Jones Act market lack the scale and specialization that can only be achieved by building for the international shipbuilding market. As a result, the limited number of ships they produce are up to five times more expensive than those built abroad. It is a testament to their technological inferiority, inferiority and lack of productivity, hallmarks of protected markets, that they do so while offering wages that are lower than those of most leading shipbuilding countries. Jones Act carriers that operate these wildly expensive ships, meanwhile, are forced to pass their acquisition costs along to consumers in the form of higher shipping rates. This, in turn, means less demand for their services and thus fewer ships and mariners. Where consumers have a choice, they almost invariably opt for the other forms of transportation, such as truck, railroad, and pipelines. Indeed, the 99-ship Jones Act fleet almost exclusively operates where there is low elasticity of demand and little competition, serving the shipping-dependent, non-contiguous states and territories and the need of the world's largest oil-producing 
country. Uh, tanker ships account for 57 of the fleet's 99 ships and roughly 80% of its deadweight tonnage. Conceived in protectionist fallacies, the case for maintaining the 1920 Jones Act becomes ever more tortured, giving its increasingly glaring divorce from modern maritime realities. Among these, uh, the sharp rise in cost differences between U.S. and foreign-built ships. Shortly after the Jones Act was passed, a U.S.-built ship was typically about 20% more expensive than one built abroad. That cost difference can now reach 400%. The increased specialization of commercial ships. The military places a premium on flexible vessels that can operate in a variety of port environments and carry different types of cargo, while the commercial sector prizes ships geared towards specific tasks that disperse their cargo in modern ports. This makes the ships of the Jones Act fleet less valuable to the military. The heavy reliance of U.S. Jones, uh, US built Jones Act ships on foreign capital, components, and know-how. Jones Act ships almost invariably use foreign designs and are heavily dependent on foreign sources for critical components such as the engine and propeller. Furthermore, the shipyards themselves are often the subsidiary of foreign parent corporations. Any notion that the high price the Jones Act ship has produced the U.S. shipbuilding capability free them for dependence is entirely illusory. Uh, you mentioned that, Ken, with the Norwegian and the Singapore uh, companies being two of the bigger ones. May I, may I just comment that you know, Henry, Henry George is an economist who, in the, la, uh, the turn of the last century, who commented that protectionism in all of its forms does to your own nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to you in wartime. And this is precisely what the Jones Act does. If an enemy would say, well, we want to cut off the ability of the United States to use shipping, well, that's what the Jones Act does to our country all, at all times. It says, well, we can't use... 99% of the world's shipping fleet has to be on that one half of 1% of American, uh, of the ships that are built in America. Well, that essentially cuts the United States off uh, economically from most of the world. And that's during peacetime. That's what the enemy yeah. would do to you in wartime. You they would say, let's cut them off from the world's shipping. Well, they say the same thing with tariffs and embargoes, right? Like, exactly. you know, a, a tariff a tariff on foreign goods is basically what they would do with an embargo in a time of war. So here's here's Cato's uh, proscription uh, for a, a better a better way forward. A new approach is needed. Rather than maintain the Jones Act status quo with its opaque costs and inequitable burdens that are disproportionately placed on Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. The United States should consider some of the following measures to meet the U.S. military need for ships and mariners to transport supplies and equipment. Uh, number one, the establishment of a civilian merchant marine reserve. Uh, the military currently lacks needed certainty around the availability of manpower to crew its sea lift vessels in wartime. U.S. merchant mariners, meanwhile, are not provided with the training and benefits commensurate with their role in assuring U.S. national security. A civilian merchant marine reserve could help address this. And I'm, I'm going to interject real quick because this is what I don't like about Cato in a lot of the things, right? At one point in time, they, they seem to be more principled um, toward liberty and freedom. And now they're, you know, now part of their prescription is how do we make the military better? Um, yeah, no, that's like a government solution to a government created problem. Right. And I think they, it's they where Cato in general goes sentence. off the rail. They should say, end the Jones Act. <laughs> True. Uh, number two from Cato. Wage subsidies to the employer of U.S. Uh, mariners. To, ah. make the em 
To make the employment of U.S. mariners more attractive, the United States could offer wage subsidies to those who employ them in exchange for an agreement that they be, be released for wartime service with guaranteed employment upon their return. Okay. Well, that's another government's, a, a government solution to the government-created problem. And again, this why is not, Cato, though. Why not? It's, it's, yeah, right. The, 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 again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this again, and then feel free to comment. I, I don't mean to cut you off. But Cato, um, as a think tank, right, they, they would make the claim that they are, these are realistic policy prescriptions as opposed to um, pie-in-the-sky uh, antidotes that we would prescribe, such as end it all entirely and get the government out of it, right? This is, well, well we're going to have it. They're trying to win over by um, essentially payoffs, essentially to the sector that's primary beneficiaries of the Jones Act right now, the, the, you know, the shipping unions and the shipping companies that have the domestic trade, rather than advocating as you were saying, uh, a principled position to advocate for the consumers and taxpayers. Right. Now, why, why should consumers and taxpayers still pay for inefficient operations? They should allow shipping shippers to decide who's their best alternative by cost, by security, by preparation, by all, all these things are better left to the market than the government anyway. Ah, uh, but that's unrealistic, Ken. You can't have every shipbuilder pay for not only the shipping cost, but also the security of the waterways while shipping across the globe, right? That would raise costs enormously to the end consumer <laughs> if we had to pay for both goods and protection of those goods. I, I guess I missed that point. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the reason they tie it into the military is because the U.S. military, the naval fleet, right, mans is, is the subsidized security force protecting consumer ships crossing across the the international waters right and if if we left if we did not have the u.s navy and the u.s military to protect those ships the goods well, upon those ships the cost would have to go up because the producers and shippers would have to pay not only for the goods that they're shipping but for the security of protecting those goods as they crossed international waters all right then all they're doing is hiding the cost of those goods in a subsidy from the taxpayers but frankly, the government shouldn't be involved in uh, any of those international operations. If, if somebody wants to do business abroad, that's part of their business to take into account the full insurance and protection costs involved with that. And yeah, they should, they should protect their own stuff. It shouldn't be the cost of the U.S. Um, Navy to, to protect shippers all around the planet. That's part of the problem why we're in the, in the Middle East with a $5 trillion war. Uh, subsidizing the oil insurance and protection costs for the oil industry. If they were paying for that out of their own pockets, people wouldn't, the, the, the price of oil from those parts of the world would be much, much more expensive and people wouldn't buy that oil and therefore they wouldn't be do, operating in the, in the Middle East and we wouldn't have so many deaths in the Middle East. Um, do you think so, the American consumers wants gas prices to get any higher? Do you think the Californians paying five bucks a gallon don't mind? Having some of that subsidized? Well, so it is subsidized paying. by the protection costs. It's just that it's hidden. I mean, yeah. if you put in the price of that of that military action into the price of the gasoline, you'd have it uh, soaring much higher than it is otherwise. That's I what mean, I'm saying. But, yeah. Do you think so, the consumer want the end consumer wants to see that cost in the in the actual price of the gas? Well, maybe not. But that's 
a subsidized cost. So it's not a real, a real realistic cost anyway. I mean, nobody wants the, to be paying $5 trillion of, uh, for military expenses that are unnecessary either, but that's what the cost of that gasoline is. Yeah, but it keeps, it keeps the sign at the gas station low for us, for us plebes to look at. Right. I don't know how much gas you're paying, but I'm paying less than two fifty a gallon right now and that seems great. If I had to if I had to absorb the full cost or at least see the full cost, minus, you know, the, the protection and military inter- intervention, I think the entire country would have a shit fit real quick. Uh just saying. Right. Like I oh, yeah, see your absolutely. point. I agree with you on principle. Uh, <laughs> but it's one of those like do you really do you really want gas to be ten bucks a gallon for most people, even if they're saving it at the other end of their taxes? Well, I'd say that there are other savings uh, here, too. Uh, lives are being lost uh, in warfare. But if, if it's expensive, too expensive to go to those parts of the world for expensive oil and gas, meaning where it's expensive because of all the warfare, it causes you to change your sources and your uh, of fuel to other locations or other types. Your fuel then might come from Canada, where it's safe, you're not, nobody, no lives are going to be lost. You pay a higher price for it, but then you don't have this massive war going on in the Middle East. You have the expenditure for all that going on in Canada next to home. So there are enormous benefits in lives saved and um, the development of Canada and the United States, for example, instead of the Middle East, getting all that destruction and, and lives lost. So, yes, it's it may result in a higher um price of fuel, but I'm guessing it won't be nearly as much as this inefficient cost of, of warfare. Warfare is the most costly and wasteful and destructive kind of expenditure you can possibly have. Fair. All right, let's get to the last uh, uh, prescription from Cato. Allowing the use, uh, back to the Jones Act, allowing the use of foreign mariners in some circumstances to ease crew shortages, the United States should consider the use of foreign mariners in some circumstances to help mitigate the possible risks measures such as background checks and eligibility restrictions to citizens of certain countries could be implemented. So what are your thoughts on that one, Ken? Uh, not limiting not limiting the crews to just U.S. crews. Is that Absolutely. one okay? Absolutely. Actually, that already, we already accept foreign crews in our harbors. In other words, a ship that comes from China or Japan or South Korea can come into Honolulu Honolulu Harbor. They can go into Los Angeles Harbor. Nothing prevents them from bringing products from abroad. That already exists. We are just not allowing a a ship to go from Honolulu to Los Angeles. In other words, we don't don't insist that all those ships have, uh, uh, you know, American scrutinized uh, crews. Uh, but they they can have whatever safety measures they want for anything in the world. They they don't have to have an extra exception for something going from one American port to another American port. Let me give you another example. I first learned about this when I was up in Alaska. Uh, the Alaska Lumber and Pulp Company was a Japanese company producing pulp from Sitka spruce, and I asked them, "Well, you say where do you sell this?" And they say, "Well, we sell it down in Seattle." Oh well, so you ship it there directly? No, no, no. It's too expensive to ship from from Sitka, Alaska to Seattle on a Jones Act ship. So it's cheaper for us to send it all the way across the ocean twice, going over to Tokyo and then back to Seattle <laughs> on a non-Jones Act ship. Well, 
how much pollution, how much uh, fuel waste, how much uh, extra risk, how much time is lost. And ultimately, it put that pulp mill out of business because the British Columbia Company could sell directly to Seattle and not have that huge transportation cost. So it's at enormous cost domestically when you cost, and I would say here the Hawaii sugar industry is out of business because it's so expensive to sell, to just, just ship um, agricultural products from Hawaii, a very, very lush and productive area for agriculture. They can't sell it because any other country in the world has cheaper shipping than, than Hawaii does. And it's a state. It'd almost be better if it wasn't a state because then they could get uh, shipping it at a, a fifth the cost. So these, these are, so I would say if an enemy would do this to the, to the United States in wartime, that's what the protectionists are. They are enemies to the United States because they're destroying the American economy for their particular special interest group and um, at great expense to the consumers and taxpayers. So from a, from a local level and maybe even a national level, like we heard the, the proscriptions from Cato, how, how does one go about eliminating the Jones Act? Is this one of those like, oh, just contact the representatives and hope they pass something or other, blah, blah, blah? No, you, you contact the people who are hurt by it and get them to lobby back. For example, uh, the Grassroots Institute has done some research on uh, uh, industries that are hurt the most. And believe it or not, one of the industries that are hurt the most by the Jones Act is the oil industry in the Gulf Coast of Texas. Because when they send a barrel of oil to New York, it costs three times as much as sending a barrel of oil to Canada. Now, it's further away to go to Canada, but it costs three times as much to send it to New York. Um, and the reason is the Jones Act. It, to go to, to Canada has to be on, I mean, uh, to go to New York has to be on a Jones Act ship. So you get those industries to push back on it. And I think you've got the lobbying leverage there to, to do so if you can um, get them as, as organized as the labor unions. Or, or let the labor unions in those industries see how they're hurt by the labor unions in the other industries. This fact, act I would is say a, that if there's this more act shipping is in Hawaii, years old. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. If there's more shipping coming into Hawaii from all over the world, you're going to have more jobs for longshoremen. Right now, you've got very limited uh, jobs for longshoremen because there's only one or two companies that are allowed to come in here. I'm you, not you, allowed to come in here, but but uh, allowed to do business here. You said that you got to get the industries that are effective activated, basically. But this act is 100 years old, close to it. Um, are, are Do you think that they're not aware of this impact, or is it already factored in to their cost? Like, what more needs to happen for them to go like, hey, you know what, maybe we should get on this Jones Act thing? Right? Don't you think the shipping company in Texas already knows it costs three times as much to get to New York? Looking at their yeah, own books. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Why haven't they done it uh, yet? Um, I, I I think that uh, they've accepted it because their competitors are doing the same kind of stuff. They can sell their oil to Europe cheaper. They can send it to to Europe cheaper than than they can send it to to New York. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's uh, broad-based uh, ignorance about the costs and benefits of this thing to to these different industries. Because it's, it's so just, old, it's kind of built in. Like, yeah, it's yeah, always it's I mean, always you, been you this raise, way. You raise the the specter of national security, and people shake and, shiv and shiver. 
But look, back in 1920, there was no NATO. There was no um, uh, treaty with Japan and South Korea. Uh, these are our allies abroad, and we don't trust them to build a ship for us and demand a ship for us. And yet, why? If they are truly our allies, and we have troops stationed in South Korea and in Japan, why can't we buy a, a, a ship from them? We don't trust an America, a, a Japanese crewed ship to deliver products for us. I mean, that's, that's outrageous that we have a treaty with them for mutual uh, protection and with all of Europe, but we can't buy a ship from them. Clearly, the, the hypocrisy is, is um, uh, devastating. I, I, John McCain actually was one who pointed out that this was uh, uh, devastating to our national security. And he didn't, uh, he didn't get anywhere with it because um, apparently the, the lobbying influence of the money from the uh, shippers' uh, unions and the shipping companies is, is very powerful and um, wasn't able to make a dent. Well, considering that it was a wartime act. Um, well, 1920 was after World War I. Okay, well, I mean, uh, okay, so not a wartime act, but to protect, to protect American interests in an in a wartime environment, is that fair? Yeah, it was right. It, okay, well, so yeah, I mean, the the idea was in case there's a war, but it, this set it up so that we were in war at all times, you know, because this protectionist act behaves as if we're at war all time. That's why you know uh, it does to our own nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to us in wartime. Right. Look so what the enemy it, does. In the British tried to cut off the shipping for the Germans during World War One and Number Two. The Germans tried to cut off the shipping for the British during World War One and World War Two. That's what the whole shipping war, all the wolf packs and the submarine warfare was all about. What we did to, to Japan at the end of the war. We and that's what the North did to the South during the Civil War. They cut off their shipping. Well, so in, it's in, so obvious, but this is what the Jones Act does to us all the time. So in peacetime, repeal the Jones Act, right? Uh, allow for foreign company, uh, foreign industries to 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 build U.S. ships. But what should happen in the case of war then? And we and we're still dependent upon those uh, on those foreign countries to 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 supply our navy. Uh, what happens? Well, remember. Uh, the United States is defending Japan and South Korea. They are the biggest shipbuilders. If if we don't trust them, why in the world do we have troops stationed over there and a massive military defending them if they're not trustworthy? I don't know. I would say I, I would say it's kind of uh, indicative of lack of trust, right? Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, exactly. otherwise, you, otherwise, you bring the troops home and you let them, you know, deal do it yeah, on their exactly. own. Exactly. If you don't trust them, then bring the troops home. Why? Why have them over there in the first place? Yeah. That's. A, I'm gonna say that's a whole other discussion um, that we're gonna be <laughs> impressed for time if we decide to get into it. Uh, any any more thoughts from you or MC? You? No. No. <laughs> Ken, final thoughts. <laughs> Sorry for getting so worked up on that. It's it's just no. so close to home here in Hawaii. Hey, that's why I pulled up the article, man, because I figured if it was, you know, you guys have more insight on this than I do, um, mostly because it's close to home and I moved away. Uh, and also, I know you work, uh, you, you know, we worked with members of the Grassroots Institute, which this is this may be their number one issue <laughs> that they're always lobbying for. Is that unfair to say? No. I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Seems to be yeah. their like their their pet issue. So I, I found the article, thought it'd be interesting to discuss. Um, MC, you said you're done. Yep. All right, wrap it up. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us: anarchistexperience.com, 
minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, uh, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.